This morning we are in Acts 13. We are on verse 34. Eric, why don't you start us with prayer and we uh, will get going. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather together to learn your word. We uh, thank you for our teacher, Bob. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak through him and help us to understand your truths so that we may live lives transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, amen. This morning, Acts 13, 34. And Paul is preaching in the synagogue at the city in Antioch. And one of the things we notice in Acts, that every single sermon or evangelistic message, whatever you want to call them, every last one of them mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we have important doctrines that need to be taught and preached, and people need to preach when they're teaching and preaching the gospel and the details of the life of Christ, his, and particularly his resurrection. Anything less than that is failing to uh, obey the Great Commission. Eric, you were just telling me there are people that have orthodox statements of faith, but they won't preach any of it. And so next Sunday was when we uh, typically celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And there are thousands and thousands of churches that what that means is... uh, Easter bunnies and daffodils. Okay. Uh, and, or maybe if they're going to really get in depth, it'll be hope for a better future without any particular reference to conversion or any miracles or anything like that. And so you have a lot of empty religion that carries on in the name of Christianity that no longer believes uh, what's true that the Bible states. And I would say, it's safe to say, I don't think it's unfair to say, what any given pastor believes is what he preaches from the pulpit, not what's in the back of the hymnal. Now, if what's in the back of the hymnal is the truth and the pastor preaches the truth and calls people to believe it, then that's evidence that he believes it. And uh, in many cases, it's not really what happens. So there are all over America, just to be warned, there are thousands upon thousands of buildings called churches where Christ is not preached, the truth is not believed, the word of God is not taught, and people are not converted. They're just simply showing up to be religious. And that's not according to the pattern of the New Testament. And so here we see Saul of Tarsus, now Paul, in Pisidian Antioch in a Jewish synagogue where he is preaching Christ and the resurrection and proving that it's predicted in the Old Testament. Acts 13.34 That's for the fact that he raised him up 
from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now we're going to see that Paul is using argumentation that would be um, according to the lines of how the rabbis and the Jews would interpret and understand scripture. And I'll show you where this goes as we go along. You might think, how does, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David have anything to do with the proof of the resurrection? But what's argued in the book of Acts, and we'll see this by a lot of scriptures, is that David died and his body was still in the grave. Okay? David was decaying. Peter preached that on Pentecost. The claim of the apostles, which is a true claim, was that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day and bodily appeared to hundreds of witnesses that he didn't decay, but ascended into heaven. Okay, and so the blessings of David, the promises that God gave to David, were not fully uh, completed in David's own day, but they pointed forward to the greater David, the promised Messiah, who was going to sit on a throne. And the claim was that he was sitting on a throne in heaven, according to Psalm 110. So because David was decaying and Messiah wasn't, the blessings of David come through Messiah. That's where this is going. Okay? And uh, the fact is that there were other resurrections from the dead that were mentioned, but the people raised were raised into mortal bodies and they died again. Lazarus, for example, in John, was raised, but he died again because... He was raised into a mortal body. The same is true in Luke X. So let's turn to Luke 7. We'll start with verse 11. To see that um, sort of thing happening. It says in Luke 7, 11, soon afterwards he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her, and he said to her, Do not... Excuse me. Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Luke seven fifteen. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, 
A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. That's the key word, by the way, visitation. Whenever there's a visitation in the Bible, two things happen. Some people are saved, and some are judged. That's what happens when there's a visitation. And that's exactly what happens with the visitation of God in Christ. Some believe and are saved. Others reject the gospel, reject Christ, and are judged. And the report, it says in verse 17 concerning, went out all over Judea and surrounding district. Now, when Paul is preaching, so this happened in Luke, but in Luke-Acts, it's clear that the resurrection, like in Luke 7, is a preview of something far greater. Because that particular son of the widow eventually would die. Because this was not a resurrection into immortality. But he just lived out a longer life than he would have, but he ended up dying, as did everyone else, including the ones mentioned in the other Gospels, where there were resurrections to prove that Christ is who he claimed to be. But the resurrection of Christ is different. He raised him up no longer to return to decay, according to this passage. That makes this absolutely unique at that point in history. And the Bible calls the resurrection of Christ, the, the raised Christ, the first fruits of those that sleep. So Christ is the very first one to show that the promise of the future resurrection for everyone who believes will be fulfilled. Eric, if you would like, you could explain the idea of first fruits to us. Yeah, you know, um, in, back in Leviticus, God had commanded that on the 16th day of Nisan, that was the day that Christ was raised from the dead, they were to celebrate the Feast of first fruits. And what they would do is, because it was the beginning of their harvest cycle, they would only have a little bit of their crop. And they were commanded to put that on a sheath, and they were to wave it before the Lord. It was a wave offering. And the idea, we never have a record of their prayer that I know of, but they would pray something like, Lord, we have this much of the harvest. We trust you for the rest. And so because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, raised on that actual feast, the imagery is he is the first down payment, but one day the rest of his people, the rest of the harvest, will come as well. And so all of that imagery is tied into the, the feast of first fruits. Amen. So Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. So this was the first time Jesus is the very first one to ever have been raised to immortality with an immortal body and who bodily ascended into heaven, according to the uh, preaching of the apostles. And no longer to return means that this was not a mortal body. It was incorruptible. Now, the same sort of preaching happened earlier (coughs) in Acts by Peter. And if you could turn with me, we'll go to Acts 2, 29-34 through for a review. A review of something earlier in Acts to show that this is thematic. Acts 2, 29, Brethren, I may confidently say 
to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Verse 30, and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to see one of his descendants on his throne, he, this, this is David as the prophet, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God's raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Okay, so Peter and the others were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you see and hear. For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Did you know that Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm, or any, in fact, the most quoted Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament? Over and over again, Psalm 110 was given by the New Testament apostles as proof of the person and work of Christ. Jesus Christ, in theology, is called his session at the right hand of God, where he ever lives to make intercession for us. He was raised with an incorruptible body. So you can think about that um, when we get next week to the discussion of the resurrection for uh, our celebration of the resurrection of Christ. Bob, I don't want to get us off track. There was an issue that's been in theology for many years, and that is how to understand Old Testament prophecy. And one of the concepts that some evangelicals adopted is a concept called census plenier, which just means the fuller meaning. And the idea would be like if David is giving a prophecy, some evangelicals had the idea that he was writing better than he knew. So he really didn't know what he was saying. He was writing, for example, in Psalm 1610, that the Holy One would not see decay, and he didn't really understand how that was going to be fulfilled, and it was completely better than he knew. Now, there's an element of truth in that, but what's interesting here in the, the passage that Bob just read, Peter's claim at Pentecost is that David was a prophet, and in verse 31, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. I think there's a cognitive knowledge that David knew, ultimately, this was going to be applied to the Messiah. So he wasn't just writing better than he knew. He knew exactly what he was saying. He was teaching messianic yeah. doctrine. There were times when the Bible does say they didn't fully understand. But maybe you can find this. There's a passage in 2 Samuel 7 where David specifically mentions that God was speaking of the distant future. So when we go on, could you go find that, Eric? I'll find that. Absolutely. You're, you're exactly right. All right. I'll, I'll look at that up. What do you know? I get to be right on a Sunday. Um, good. So, so there's a, a mention of David in several places that have to do with the proof of the resurrection. Now, there is also a reference to Isaiah 55, 3. And the emphasis is on you. 
which would be his Jewish audience. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So Paul is saying God is actually doing that by raising the greater David, the descendant of David, Messiah. He's giving to a future generation of people blessings that they thought only existed when David was alive on the earth. And so you is mentioned. Let me read Isaiah 55.3, and then Eric will prove that David actually knew about future prophecy. Isaiah 55.3, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. And there's a thing going on in the Greek there that links two verses in the Septuagint together. They're they're very interesting. I'll I'll talk about that next slide. Go ahead, Eric. Sounds good. I'll shut that door, too, after this. Uh, Verse 19, this is 2 Samuel 7. Sorry, it takes my eyes a while to focus. Need cheaters. Where's your glasses? I know, I only got sunglasses. (laughs) I'm holding out. It says, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction. Literally, it's Torah in the Hebrew. This is Torah for mankind, O Lord God. So the Davidic covenant given to David, he knew it wasn't going to be fulfilled in Solomon, but it was for a great while to come in the greater David. And that was Torah for all mankind. Right. So it applied to future generations. And David knew that it did. So there, what, 2 Samuel 7, what verse was it? 2 Samuel 7, 19. Okay, thank you. Okay, 2 Samuel 7, 19 is that passage. Let me quote Dr. Tannehill, his narrative unity of Luke Acts, volume 1 and 2, I've been using as a resource the entire time I've been teaching through Luke Acts, which has been well over 10 years. Tannehill, quote, the significance of the Messianic promise for the Jewish people is expressed by the quotation of Isaiah 55, 3 in Acts 13, 34. Uh, A quotation, says Tannehill, that usually receives too little attention. The plural you, who mean, shows that this promise is not a promise to the Messiah, but to the Jewish people in the context of the speech to Paul's audience. The application of Paul's message to his audience is strongly stressed to the first or second person plural pronouns, sometimes in the emphatic position. This is for you. And it's from David in the Old Testament, and God raised up Messiah in keeping with promises given to and through David. Let's go to the next verse, verse 35. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So I did some research on this. I have have some notes on it in my computer here. Isaiah 55, 3 in the Greek Old Testament that is cited often in the New 
there's terminology that links to Holy One in Psalm 16.10. Now, this is not going to raise any eyebrows excuse me, in the synagogue because they did this sort of uh, discussion all the time. Okay? So, the significance of the holy things of David, holy things is ta Hosea, David, okay, ta Hosea of David, and then the other one is ha Hosios. And so there's ta Hosea, ta Hosea. So, <coughs> <coughs> And so there is the grammatical link. And so the next verse will apply this to the greater David, and um, who is Christ, who is the Holy One. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, no, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's Messiah. So there is some strong terminology of the Old Testament that Paul, in this synagogue, is citing to his Jewish audience to prove that the promise of a resurrection to immortality, in which there is no decay, was applied not to David, but to Messiah. And that David himself predicted this. So I love learning these things. I don't know about you, but I I truly do. Now, Peter, as I read earlier, made this same decay connection in Acts 2, 27 and 31. He said, we know David decayed. Here's his grave. And they would have all known where that was at that time, 2,000 years ago. There's his grave. We know he's in it. But uh, at least his body. But Messiah didn't decay. We're witnesses. We saw him. He appeared to us. And he visibly and bodily ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. Now these truths, dear ones, are the very essence of biblical Christianity. We can't play fast and loose with them. We can't be content that they're stuck somewhere in somebody's creeds and councils in the back of the hymnal. They have to mean enough to us that we're willing to preach them not only to the flock in the church, but when we evangelize the lost. We need to preach the resurrection of Christ and call people to believe on him whom God raised from the dead. And it, it's very important that we get this. And I think that the biggest, and I'll, I'll do some more today to show you where post-modernity is just uh, pulling your rug out from under all of this if we let it. But we've got to resist the lie and keep preaching the truth whether people like it or not. Now, most everybody's here. Let me show you some more pictures.
I want you to know, we're talking about historicity. I bought all of these photos of that are of the sites that are mentioned in the Bible. And this one here is uh, Pisidian Antioch. And somebody uh, built uh, a temple there. And let me read uh, what I have on this particular slide that's taken at that site. It says here, built sometime around A.D. 25, this temple was dedicated to Augustus, who was honored as the founder of the city. Constructed in front of a two-story semicircular portico and adjacent to a large colonnaded courtyard with about 150 columns, this podium temple became the focal point of the city. So here was something that existed at the very time Paul was preaching elsewhere in the same city in the synagogue. The places and events mentioned in the Bible are real places, real cities, real history. And so that's uh, showing that Pisidian Antioch was uh, a vibrant city at the very time Paul was there. Now, Again, from the same city, uh, it's Pisidian Antioch. Let me give you uh, what, what this slide says. Tradition locates the synagogue. That's what we're just talking about. That's where Paul was, where Paul preached at the location of the Church of St. Paul, visible in the middle distance. The paving stones of the uh, Decamanus are visible in the foreground. See, what happened was that uh, later, after Constantine, there were people going around finding sites about in the 300s A.D. and building churches on them. Have you, do you have any more to add about that? I mean, yeah, they, and so they went around and built a church on this site, and a church on that site, and a church on this site. And so really what it tells us, and if you've been to Israel, you've probably heard about all that. All it tells us for sure was that in 300-some, between three and 400 A.D., or maybe a little after, they believed at that point in history, this is where it happened. Okay? Now... I have another one. So here's uh, the caption on that. The church has foundations. Okay, this is that church of an earlier building underneath it. Okay, so it was built on top of a building that was already there. Possibly the synagogue where Paul preached. The church itself was constructed in the 4th century A.D. That's as I said, be the three... 300 and something. So there was a foundation there. I had a, a comment on the uh, holy one doesn't decay. Okay. Good. And in the, in the Old Testament, when the law was given, the Jews were to bury their dead within 72 hours. And that's even today. You see 
the conservative Jews, they it's real quick. Yeah. They bury their dead. And I want and I'm wondering if I'm wrong to uh tie that in with when Jesus died on the cross, he was quickly taken from the cross and was in the tomb. So to fulfill the prophecy, there had to be no pre-burial decay either. Well, um, if I'm right about this, and I'm, there's people here who, who would probably know, if you go into John with the thing about Lazarus, and wasn't it the fourth day and they said he stunk? Could you talk about that? Yeah, in um, John 11. He stinketh. Yeah, exactly. That's the New King James Version, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> or the King James Version. It, uh, literally, Martha uses the term, it's a participle. It's, it's recorded in the Greek by the gospel writer John. He, she, the term that's used is four-dare. He's a four-dare. So in other words, don't roll the stone away because my brother, Lazarus, he's a four-dare. And so there's some implication that the Jews believed official decay began on the third day. So one of the necessities then is that the Messiah had to be raised on the third day. Now, the reason that's important is, remember, according to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Well, a lot of scholars have racked their minds to say, well, exactly where in the Old Testament does it predict Messiah is going to be raised on the third day? This may be one of the texts that does it. Because if decay officially starts on the fourth day, right. he has to be raised prior to that. He had to be raised before the decay. Exactly. And so that, uh, I know, is, is another consideration. It's not something I'm going to deal with next Sunday, because I'm going to stay in Matthew. But it, they did have a day of prep. They did want to prepare and get the body properly into the grave. Do I have another one? Yes, one more here. The Church of... St. Paul was apparently built over a synagogue in the first century A.D. Both tradition and recent excavations suggest that this may be the synagogue mentioned in Acts 13, 14. So there is some photographic evidence that these places really existed. Yeah, it's interesting in recent church history, the transition in theological liberalism from rationalism in the early 20th century that denies miracles to postmodern mysticism happened during a century in which archaeology made huge strides because of the just not only science and ability to identified places and dating and whatever, but just the political situation that allowed scientists to do excavation without fear of war or whatever. And so the liberal ideas that were so prominent in the early 20th century that these places were mythological, that the Bible's mythological, that there can be no miracles, and so on, well, they were being overturned by concrete proof and evidence from archaeology, including, I remember in 83 when I was in Israel, we saw the so-called Pilate Stone because the liberals were saying there's no Pilate. So when the Christians are claiming, like in Matthew, which I'll preach next Sunday, that Pilate was a key character at the time of 
Christ's trial and burial and the guarding of the tomb and so on, there was no such thing as Pilate because the liberal assumption was if somebody hasn't found the death proof, it doesn't exist because everything in the Bible is mythology. So we won't believe the Bible unless it's confirmed by modern archaeology. It says they thought they were safe, but lo and behold, they found Pilate. So that theory went out the window. And now recently, within the last year, I saw in the paper, they found again another inscription. Uh, did anybody else see this? A Pilate. Whether it was jewelry or a ring or something. They found more about Pilate. So now it's not disputed that he really existed. The synagogue really existed. The places and people are accurate. Luke Acts, in particular, has a lot of historical reference about who is in charge, who's the ruler, who's the governor, what sort of providence. Was it an imperial providence or a senatorial one? What's the name of the kind of ruler over each of those? What's the names of the ruler? And again and again, Luke got it right. And so it's pretty hard to say it's not historically accurate. So now what they say is nobody can know anything. Reality is a state of mind. And we just go into the la-la land of the mystical universe. And we can't even know what God said. I'll talk about that in a bit here. That's what emergence about. And so now it doesn't matter if there's archaeology because we don't know anything. Reality is a state of consciousness. Socially constructed. Where are we? Okay, yes. Um, I was wondering if we could have Eric explain the reasons because of the... It seems in the narrative, it seems like there's two different Passovers. And I think it's because there's actually two different calendars being observed. Is that right? Yeah, you know, it's, it's all handled. There's a great book out there. It's called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. It's written by Harold Honer in the 1970s. Bob is actually, um, it's one of the commentaries Bob I'm uses. I'm using Honer on Ephesians. Yeah, he's very good. But in that commentary, what he does is he shows that the Judeans had a different reckoning of a day than those in Galilee. And I may have this reversed, but the Galileans, if they began the day at sunrise, well, the... Judeans were beginning it at midnight, let's say, or, or sundown. So there was a sundown. There was a 12-hour shift. Well, that 12-hour shift accounts for the difference between the synoptics and John. That's the big idea. So that also, by the way, the reason why the Sadducees didn't mind that, remember, they're the ones who are running the temple, that allowed them to get more sacrifices in because Passover, therefore, was a longer period of time. But that explains why you have this discrepancy there really is a prolonged time period because you had two reckonings of a day that both had to be accepted if Judaism was going to hang together. Right, and there's a lot of good material from that period. A lot of material. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls were a major find. Um, Qumran material. And what we're finding, I'll just tell you, you can trust your Bible. Go to verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Same idea that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. 
purpose is thematic in Luke Acts. Here the word is boule and is used uh, out of the 12 times this word boule is used in the New Testament, nine of them are in Luke Acts. Now, why is that significant? Because it shows his emphasis on the sovereignty of God over history. And this emphasis is seen throughout Luke Acts, beginning with the very beginning of Luke, when Luke narrates the situation, the political situation, at the time of Christ. And God's purposes go forward. One of the claims of the Bible is what I call compatibilism, is that, that humans are doing as they see fit on the face of the earth, and in the process, God's purpose is still going forward. Humans may rebel against God's moral will, which they do constantly, but they can't thwart God's eternal purpose. And that in the course of doing exactly what they wanted to do, they actually forward unwittingly the purpose of God. Now that's why this is brought up. It was mentioned earlier in Luke X. Now, uh, let's turn to Luke 7 and verse 30. This is very, very important. We want everyone who receives teaching here to have a good, solid theological education right in the church. Here. Right in the church. Because you can't, I'm not saying there's no good seminaries, but one that you think is good, by the time you spend all your money and get there, something else is going on. Right, Eric? All right, so um, you get the truth for free, however much you want to pay for your heresy. All right, Luke 7 and verse 30. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, having not been baptized by John. So the claim was that John was the one predicted, and he was a prophet. Actually, I've heard theologians, and I think rightly so, say John was the last prophet of the Old Covenant, the one predicted in Malachi to be the Elijah who would come. And God's revealed purpose was being fulfilled by John the Baptist. But there were people on the scene of history whose purpose was political and other wrong ideas like money and power and honor and whatever that were not willing to submit to God's revealed purpose, which was to repent and to be baptized. Yes. You know, I just noticed not having been baptized by John, John's baptism was of repentance. Right. So these people were not repentant. Is that Amen. a fair? 
assessment. They were. They did not want to repent because they had a, a good situation and they wanted to keep it going. Sounds familiar, actually. Yeah, and frankly, they didn't want anything to change because they liked how it was going. And we'll see that next week when I preach in Matthew about the scribes and Pharisees, or the the elders and the chief priests are the ones mentioned, who want to make sure Jesus stays in the grave and are in rebellion. So uh, let me, let's go on here now. So jot that down, Luke 7.30. But then let's look at Acts 2.23. And we'll see what I'm calling the doctrine of compatibilism. Acts 2.23. Uh, Peter, again, this man, talking about Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, this verse, don't forget it. This is one of the more important theological verses in Luke-Acts, is affirming that two things are true at one and the same time. Acts 2.23. And here's the two things. Number one, that humans who rebel against the evidence, and there was plenty of evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, throughout Luke, we saw that. And then his resurrection, they they uh, refused to believe. They refused to repent. From John the Baptist until the time of Peter and Paul preaching, many still refused to repent. They were doing exactly what they wanted to do, which is to live for something else rather than the purpose of God. And so they are morally culpable in their rebellion and rejection of Christ. Can we agree on that? It's a sin to reject Christ. And they're culpable. But then, the other thing is that that the fact that they did so is the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God determined from all eternity and then inspired the scriptures that tell us that, that his own son would come and would be born of a virgin and would live as a man, fully human and fully God, and would live this sinless life and would do many great works to demonstrate who he is, to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets, the promise made to the patriarchs, but that he would be rejected. This is predicted in the book of Isaiah. who's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So this is a revealed will of God. And it was the purpose of God that this sinless one would die a substitutionary death, would shed his blood and pay the penalty for the sins of those wicked sinners who would eventually believe in him and be forgiven and saved. 
So the rejection of Christ was done by morally culpable humans. And it was at one in the same time, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross. In other words, by the hand of godless men, you're wicked sinners. You thought political power was more important than coming to God through his Messiah. So therefore, repent. That's what Luke is saying. The sovereignty of God and the morally culpable choices of humans are both true. Is anybody... uh, I, I know it's an awful lot to think about. Uh, If there's no more comments on that, I'll continue. But David served the purpose of God, and even the people who rejected Christ served the purpose of God. And let me just say a little more. I know, Eric, do you plan to still teach about this? Well, let me give you a preview. Previews and reviews are good. Good way to learn. Just contemplating this, Paul actually in... in um, Romans 11, wasn't it? Anticipates an objection. So somebody can read this and say, who doesn't want to serve God? Well, then you can't judge me. Okay. Everything I did served God's purpose. So he has to exonerate me because he needed me to reject Messiah. Somebody's going to try to claim that. What's the answer? Eric, I'll let you give your own preview. How does God, how does he reply? Yeah, who are you, old man, to speak back to God? Yeah. Yeah. You don't think it's going to work? No, it's not going to work. Is there any lawyer that's going to get you off? (laughs) No, that's right. We're culpable. You better get a good lawyer on the day of judgment. But it won't work. Because you know that it's immoral to kill an innocent man. There's been... People that have said things like that. I, well, years ago, there was some movie where a guy was going to get off because he said, well, they need me to do all this evil because otherwise the police wouldn't have a job. <laughs> and so I'm doing a lot of good by being a crook. So you don't put me in jail. I'm needed. Well, so that's the kind of argument you see in, uh, in Romans 11 that Paul rejects. Now look at Acts 4.28. When they talk about what they did. Acts 4.28. So I'm looking at this boule, this purpose. To do, remember they were praying what, what all had happened? This is part of the prayer. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Now, there is an apologetic reason for this material to be written in the book of Acts and in Luke Acts. And the apologetic is this, that if you Christians are right and you have the true message, then why are you a motley band of rejects? Why is your guy crucified by the Romans? Why don't you, aren't you the ones with the big buildings and the money 
and the priesthood and the temple and all these wonderful things look at you. Ragtag bunch of fishermen and uh, people with nothing going for them with fewer followers than we have. So what's, what's your excuse for being so pathetic? And the answer is the scripture predicted all of this. The scripture predicted Messiah would be rejected. The scripture predicted that it'll be a remnant that will be saved. Paul said in, in Romans. The scripture predicted that the followers of Christ would be despised and rejected like their master. Jesus said, it needs be that offenses come, but woe to the one by whom they come. So what we know on the scene of history is the moral will of God. And it's not for us to know the mind of God to be his counselor. But it's for us to know the moral will. Or uh, decretive will would be what is going to happen. The moral or revealed will would be the same as saying the moral will or the revealed will. We know what the Ten Commandments say. We know what Jesus taught. We know how he told us to live. And we can't get by rebelling against that, saying, well, it serves God's purpose for me to be a rebel. That's not, we don't know the secret things of God. We know what's revealed. Okay, so David served the purpose of God, fell asleep. Now, David had failures, didn't he? But he served the purpose of God, and he went, underwent decay. David is mentioned 11 times in Acts, as Luke shows his prophetic importance. David was not the predicted Holy One who would not suffer decay. He, it's already been proved by both Peter in, in earlier in Acts 2 and Paul here in Acts 13. That it cannot be David, he's decaying, but Messiah who did not decay. I want to mention one more verse. Let's do a preview. If you want to turn to it, Acts 2027. 2027. We're talking about this word boule, purpose. The purpose of God. It says in Acts 2027, for I did not shrink from declaring to you, this is Paul saying this, to the elders at Ephesus, the whole boule, the whole purpose of God. That which is God's purpose that is revealed, we must declare. And we must declare the whole purpose. The whole purpose. I noticed in my debates uh, over the years, People that want to escape aspects of this that they don't like, they do not teach verse by verse by verse by verse through the whole Bible. Why? Because they don't like so much of it. And so they pick and choose what will fit into their purpose, which is to exalt man and his abilities, or to 
mitigate the sinfulness of the sin nature or to be popular or whatever motivates somebody. But if you are going to do what Paul did, declare the whole purpose of God, you can't skip things because they're uncomfortable. Because the things we skip are probably what we need to hear the most. And it's better, way better. And I'll probably have to do this should the Lord tarry and should I have the health and strength to do it. When I finish Ephesians, I want to teach you 1 Corinthians. There's verses in there I don't understand. I'm going to tell you right now. But it's, it's not a sin to say I don't understand when you, in fact, do not understand, even when you've done your best. And there are cases where Paul is referencing something specifically to people in a certain church that they knew what he was talking about, and he knew what he was talking about, but we've got a guess. Right, Eric? We run across that. It's better to cover it and say, if I don't know for sure, I'm going to tell you that. But I'm not going to skip around and avoid things. For example, why did Paul think it was better for people to stay single because of the shortness of the times? Turns out he was wrong, wasn't he? Because we're still here. So there's plenty of time to get married and have a family. That's in 1 Corinthians. But you've got to cover it all. Um, okay, so to that end, I want to do a little more. I want to be building a worldview also because I see the serious damage being done to people that I know. <laughs> Excuse me. And uh, who have been damaged by post-modernity and people's children and friends and loved ones have been damaged by post-modernity. So that's one of the reasons I wrote about it. Let me talk about the version of this that's called missional. Now, um, there's a mission we see in Acts that we've been studying. There are people who are saying, we can't know Christian theology, but we can have a mission. (laughs) That cough drop ran off on me. We can have a mission. So the question is, can you have a mission if you don't have a theology? All right, so I addressed that in, in this book I wrote about that, the whole topic. Let me just cite some of that. If, we, if indeed the missional approach that knows very little about theology, by being quite certain about one's mission, is valid, I'm claiming it is incumbent upon those so certain about their mission to validate it in some manner that's not self-referential. I'll read a little more, and then I'll talk about that term, self-referential. For example, claiming to be on a mission from God without any possible way, way of knowing what God has said is, self, is a self-validating claim. How do they know any mission is a God-selected mission for them? 
let me, then I'm quoting the would-be defender of that position. Quote, because God is good, and of course God wants us to do good rather than evil, unquote. Those are things I've actually heard from people. We, do, we don't know much about God. We know he's good, so he wants us to do good. So then I'm going to continue. How then do they know their definition of good is the same as God's? How do you know that? Do ethics come out of thin air? If God hasn't spoken, how do you know what's good and what's evil? When I talk about self-referential, we have a term in apologetics called self-referentially incoherent. Somebody says, I'm the greatest politician who ever ran for office. How do you know that? Well, because look at me. I know I'm good. I'm great. I've got everything. Just ask me. I know I'm the best. It's self-referentially incoherent. And how do you know what you're doing is good? Because I'm a good person and I'm doing it. That's self-referentially incoherent. You need outside evidence to validate a truth claim. Let me continue here. Okay. How do we know our definition of good is the same as God's? If they keep pressing the question, they are forced to accept some sort of communication from God. If such communication exists and is valid, then God has spoken. If God has spoken then we can know the truth about him and his will. These are things I'm writing. If we know the truth about him and his will from valid verbal communication, then we can know what mission he wants us on. If we know that, the missional claims of the emergent church are false. If we cannot know that, then why go to a pagan people and try to persuade them to stop putting their young girls in temples to be abused by priests Maybe their gods really told them to do that and are pleased with the practice. That's what I'm writing. Well, we know that's bad. How? How do you know it's bad? There are people doing it and they think it's good. If you get to be self-referential, so do they. We can speak with authority and say that's evil. Why? Because God has spoken. And good is revealed by God and not found in the consciousness of the universe or any given religious person. And that's why Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 are so important. God has spoken. And everything now, sadly, is up for grabs. Everything. I saw a video of a guy was attacked and shut down and made to stop speaking at a college for making the claim that males and females are different. Did you see that? You can't say that. You're evil. How can you say men and women are different? Well, let's just go to DNA. But see, now you see, if you saw that, I don't know if I'm, some of you saw that news thing. 
It's, I, I don't know how much money you want to spend to have your kids hear that kind of garbage. Anyhow, listen. That's what self-referentially incoherent looks like. There's no evidence, whether it's God, Genesis, talking about male and female, or DNA, which is science evidence, that will convince these people that men and women are different. Because their reality is self-referential. It's only in their own mind. Dana. Just going back to your first slide for a minute, um, just to show you how closely the New Testament ties to the Old Testament and how closely Jesus fulfilled the typology of the Old Testament, uh, you read from uh, Luke 7 about where Jesus raised this woman's son. Yes. Well, I'm in my Bible study on Wednesday night, I'm currently going through the books of Kings, and so I'm going through the stories of Elijah and Elisha. And this, this village of Nain, where Jesus raised this woman's son from the dead, yes. is on the same hill as the Old Testament village of Shunem, where Elisha raised a woman's son from the dead. Wow. So, so you can understand why the people of Nain were so marveled at this. Because here's, a, here's heard, one. They had heard the story many times, obviously. Yeah, and so here's a greater Elijah. Yeah. yeah, what happened there. And there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. So you can understand why in, in uh, Luke seven sixteen, and there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that, that a great prophet has risen up among us. Elijah. And, and, that God, and that God hath visited us, his people. So they'd heard this story about Elisha, yeah. and now, they, now Jesus comes along and does this very same thing on the same place. That's a good reading. A good reading. Thank you, Dana. <laughs> He's already got his coffee. Thank you. See, why would you reject the Bible when you get to learn more of it every day? It's absolutely true. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is true. Thank you that we can come and learn. Thank you for all these things, and may we be bold in the gospel and comforted by your promises, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you upstairs.